British historian Andrew Roberts, in the introduction to his most recent book called The Last King of America, a 757-page opus on King George III, says the following, quote from Mr. Roberts, The portrait of a heartless, absolute sovereign is repeated almost every single day in America's print and online media. Even two centuries after his death, hardly a day passes in the United States without some reference to George III, where he is still held up as an equal opportunities hate figure, an archetypal bogeyman attacked in the same measure by Democrats and Republicans alike. Andrew Roberts, over the past 30 years, has also written major histories about Napoleon, Churchill, and World War II. Andrew Roberts, can you tell me, from your perspective, what the difference is between an American and a Brit? <laughs> what an extraordinary question. Um, well, I suppose uh, the the key one is that uh, we're a monarchy and you're a republic. I, that's the one I would I go for first. But otherwise, I like to concentrate on the things that we have in common: our law and our literature and our language and so on. But what is, you know, you've spoken in front of many American audiences and many British audiences. Do you sense a difference in the, the interest that they show and what they're interested in? Well, you tend to be more polite. But uh, maybe it's because I'm a Brit and therefore in front of British audiences, um, they, people are a bit more sort of harsh and uh, and, and tough. But um, uh, the people, especially who turn up to literary uh, events in America, tend to be the most incredibly polite people in the world. So um, I do I do notice that very much. When you came to the United States to do your tour on the book on uh, King George III, how did you compare the audience's interest in him compared to the other books you've done, Napoleon and uh, Winston Churchill? Well, um, I think the um, obvious difference, of course, is that the uh, George III was your last king. And so, in a sense, the interest was about the revolution and, uh, and how the revolution took place and whether or not uh, George III was a tyrant and so on. Um, whereas with Napoleon and with Churchill... The um, emphasis is very much on them, as opposed to uh, as opposed to anything they might have interacted with America over. Well, those three men that you've written a lot about, which one did you spend the most time getting ready for the book? Well, um, Napoleon took me six years to to research and write, and uh, Churchill took four years, and George the Third took three. But in fact, in a sense, of course, I've been. Uh, writing about Churchill all my life um, for uh, the last 30 years, certainly. I've been, um, I think I've published five books with his name in the title or the subtitle. So, so I suppose it would have to be him. The last and only time you and I have talked was in London in 2002. And one of the things, when I went back and watched it, I had forgotten about that you said you were on your way to writing a book an authorized biography of Henry Kissinger. Why did you not do that? Um, well, it was it was quite a, um, a difficult decision. That actually, once I discovered that he had um, deposited thirty tons of papers at the um, at the Library of Congress, I recognised that it would require an enormous amount more commitment than than I could give. It would require a lot of research assistance, 
uh, that would be expensive. It would require me to live in America permanently. Um, and uh, I had um, not signed any contract or anything like that. And then the uh, the, the great news came that my great friend uh, Neil Ferguson was uh, going to be able to to make that commitment, make both of those commitments. And uh, and so he's taken it on. But as you say, that was 20 years ago. And Neil has published volume one of the of the book. So it really was a, an extraordinary commitment to undertake. I thought I should have thought it through a bit more impressively um, at the time, frankly. In one of your events that I watched on uh, either C-SPAN or YouTube, uh, you said that your next book, at least you implied that your next book would be on Disraeli. Is that your plan? Yes, very much. In fact, this morning I was I was working on uh, on that, on getting a timeline uh, together of uh, Israeli's life and uh, and death. So it's a um, it's all underway. Why did you pick him? Well, he's an he's an enormous figure, and I, I'm not sure how well known he is in America, but he certainly is a, a big figure in Britain. He was. Uh, um, I think the Prime Minister with the most interesting and exciting backstory, apart from possibly Winston Churchill himself. Um, he was uh, Jewish, of course, a complete outsider when it came to the Victorian world. He was uh, never went to to public school or Oxbridge. Um, and so uh, somehow through his wit and his, his genius, really, and his... Uh, and his intellect, he managed to become prime minister at a time of, of massive anti-Semitism across uh, across the certainly the upper classes in uh, Britain and Victorian England. And then he went on to be a very successful prime minister. So I think it's a and, and at the time, of course, Britain was the most powerful empire in the world. So it was a real sort of story of, of a complete outsider becoming essentially the most powerful man in the world. Put all these people in perspective. Uh, just mention one more thing about Disraeli. Why would Richard Nixon have admired him? Um, well, I've actually I've read um, Nixon on on Disraeli. I think Nixon uh, was being a little bit solipsistic here in that he was uh, seeing himself as an outsider. Um, you know, having uh, having um, grown up not exactly in poverty, but not uh, not well off uh, in California, he he managed to get to the become the most powerful man in the world as well. So I wonder whether or not he might have been thinking about Richard Nixon as much as about Benjamin Disraeli. In your book on King George the Third, you have a footnote in the conclusion chapter uh, from a speech from uh, Winston Churchill in 1919. I'll read what he said and then ask you to break it down for us. George Washington, this was on George Washington's birthday, by the way. George Washington was an English gentleman who fought against a German king and defended his country by the aid of men of British blood against a very considerable number of Hessian and Hanoverian mercenaries. Break it all down for us. Classic. This is classic Churchill. Um, yes, well, first of all, George III was not a German king. He was very much an English king. English was his first language. He was the first king of England uh, for about 150 years to have been born and, and bred and educated in uh, in um, Britain and was very proud of it and was popular for it, in fact. Um, and secondly, although there were a large number of, of German, uh, they weren't mercenaries. They were auxiliaries, in fact. Um, there's a There's a sort of etymological difference between them, but nonetheless, um, they made up about one third 
quarter to one third of the of the British Army. So I don't think that I think I think uh, in that fantastically patriotic speech that uh, he's making, which he made in the Criterion Restaurant in uh, in Piccadilly in. Um, uh, 1919, as you say, I think he was trying to um, to flatter his American interlocutors more than to actually go for the historical truth. You talk when you um, give us the background on this particular book on the king about your access to the Georgian papers. Explain what th- those yes. are, and then when did you get access? Um, yes, they are. It's called the Georgian Papers Programme, and it's a wonderful um, collaboration between the Royal Archives and King's College London, where I'm um, uh, a visiting fellow. And what essentially happened in 2015 is that the Queen put um, 200,000 pages of uh, the Georgian kings, the Hanoverian kings, um, including, in fact, William IV, to, um, on, to, online. And so when the, and they've been extremely well curated and they're well documented and they're well um, footnoted and so on. And so when um, the lockdown happened and I was in the middle of, um, of working at the Royal Archives and it closed, um, closed for, uh, for 18 months, it could have just sort of wrecked the book. But instead, because of this, uh, I was able to, um, to read his, his papers and diaries and memoranda and correspondence and so on uh, online. So when did you have a couple of those aha moments? Well, I got one very early on, actually, um, which uh, was was pleasing because you always want to have a great aha moment when you um, when you start because obviously it sort of gives you a great fillip. And um, I was working on um, his essays that he wrote when he was Prince of Wales in the 1750s. And he wrote this. Can I just quote two sentences? Um, uh, This is what I found in writing. What shall we say for European traffic in black slaves? The very reasons urged for it will be perhaps sufficient to make us hold such practice in execration for an inhuman custom wantonly practiced by the most enlightened, polite nations in the world. There is no occasion to answer them, for they stand self-condemned. So you have here a Prince of Wales in the 1750s who is clearly opposed to slavery. He never bought or sold a slave in his life. He never um, invested in any of the companies that did that. And he eventually signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade. And yet he's been held for 200 years as being on a much lower sort of moral plane than the signatures of the Declaration of Independence, for example. 50, uh, there were 56 of them, 42 of them owned slaves at some stage in their lives. So I think that was a worthwhile aha moment. And in fact, that document, which I've also used as an illustration in my book, um, has uh, just been published in full in the Times Literary Supplement. I'm going to quote you from the Declaration of Independence, because you have a whole chapter on this. And just before Thomas Jefferson and his committee get into accusations against King George III, they wrote, The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Your reaction to that? Completely untrue. Uh, It's a beautiful document, the Declaration of Independence. Those opening two paragraphs are as fine a piece of English as as can be found, including with Shakespeare and uh, um, and the authorised 
the version of the Bible. It's, um, it's, it makes you proud to be a human, some of the, uh, the, the uh, arguments put forward in the Declaration. Uh, utterly sublime, sublime prose. But as you say, then there's this uh, second section which uh, attempts to make uh, George III out to be um, the um, unfit to be the ruler of a few of a free people and plotting um, plotting an absolute tyranny and so on, uh, which is absolutely rubbish. <laughs> there are 28 charges, only two of which hold any water whatsoever. Uh, in the in the declaration, but those two, uh, the seventeenth, which is about taxation, and the twenty second, which is about Parliament's veto right over American legislation, in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. You see, America was ready and ripe for revolution. It was right to to have an independent America in the seventeen seventies, um, but that doesn't turn uh, George the Third into a tyrant, which he was not. So your book on Napoleon, your book on. Winston Churchill, and now your book on this king. I want to ask you some questions about all three of them. First, were, were, what role did religion play in each of their lives? Um, well, in George III, a, a great deal. He was um, he was a practicing Anglican. He was very interested in uh, in theology and in the church. Uh, he was uh, pious in the right sense of the word, and um, and the uh, direct um, sort of connection to uh, the Almighty was something that he um, uh, that he, he believed he had all his life. Um, Churchill, not so much. Churchill believed that um, he, he was not a Christian um, in the sense that he didn't believe that Jesus was the um, Son of God, but he did believe that Jesus had handed down the finest system of ethics and morals that uh, the world had ever seen. And um, he did believe in an almighty, although when you look into it quite carefully, the um, sole, the primary duty of the almighty was to take care of Winston Churchill, um, frankly. With Napoleon, it's a little bit more complicated in that he um, he never said he wasn't a, uh, a believer, um, but he was much more a sort of follower of Voltaire and Rousseau and their free thinking, free thinking philosophy. Um, he had a very strange relationship uh, with the Catholic Church in that he did allow it to um, take over its churches again after the revolution, and he set up the church again. But then he arrested and imprisoned and kidnapped the Pope. So, um, uh, yeah, so he, he, all three of them had very different uh, um, stances with regard to religion. In um, one of your talks, you talked about who is allowed to be called great. And you named Peter the Great, Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great, and Alfred the Great. Why wouldn't it be King George the Great, Napoleon the Great, Winston Churchill the Great? Well, I do, I do call my book Napoleon the Great in England, in fact, um, and he was called Napoleon Le Grand in, in some French uh, biographies, especially the ones during his lifetime, obviously. Um, so I think he does deserve the title The Great. Um, Churchill, I, it's, it's usually, the, the word The Great is usually um, attached to, to monarchs and uh, to, um, to you know, heads of state, which, which Churchill never was. And, and George III can't be, unfortunately, because although, as I say, he wasn't a tyrant, he did, he was king at the time of the greatest catastrophe to overcome um, my country between, really, the loss of the Angevin lands in the 15th century 
and the fall of France in 1940. So we can't really call call him George the Great. Assassination attempts. The three men, how many? Lots. Um, uh, Not any on Winston Churchill, extraordinarily, uh, unless you... Unless you add the, um, you take into account the one where he was almost pushed under a train by a suffragette in Bristol um, in, I think, 1911. But there were many on um, on Napoleon. Uh, one which he very um, narrowly missed, um, which was when a cart was was blown up as his carriage uh, was uh, going to taking him to the opera. And uh, and that um, killed about 20 people, but but not him. And then, of course, um, with George III, he survived six assassination attempts, uh, all from people with mental imbalances rather than for political reasons. And he had a um, uh, he, he showed tremendous calmness and sang-froid under pressure. And actually, on one occasion, when somebody shot him at the beginning of an opera, he went to sleep at the interval. How did they attempt to assassinate him? In in in, uh, in what way? Um, well, as I say, one chap tried to stab him at the opera. Somebody else um, tried to knife him as he was taking a um, lady called Margaret Nicholson, who who um, he took a petition from. And as he put out his hand, she then took out a knife and stuck it in him, but not very far. Um, there was an attempt to... Um, to blow him up um, as his carriage went down the Mall, just got to the Admiralty. They wanted to try and take over a, a cannon, which turned out to be a ceremonial cannon, and therefore not one that actually worked. Um, and there was also uh, a, a, a chap who wanted to, who stayed in St. James's Park until one o'clock one in the morning, one morning, and his uh, sedan chair was being brought back by beef eaters to um, Buckingham Palace. And uh, and he didn't put enough um, enough um, gunpowder in the priming pan of his pistol. You said that Winston, uh, Winston Churchill was stabbed by a penknife at a young age. What was that story? Well, that wasn't an assassination attempt. That was um, that was a, he was um, ten years old and he was having a row with a with a lad at his prep school who um, who, as you say, stuck a penknife in him, but. Uh, but um, I don't think that counts as an assassination attempt. There are lots of other um, times that Churchill nearly died um, before he became Prime Minister. He was involved in uh, three car crashes, two plane crashes, he nearly drowned in Lake Geneva. Um, he nearly was burned to death in a house fire. Um, he was uh, run over, of course, in on 77th Street and Fifth Avenue in New York, um, uh, by a car that uh, very nearly killed him. Um, and then, of course, he had a, a, a few uh, um, medical um, illnesses as well. So, And he took part in the last great cavalry charge of the British Empire. He escaped from a prisoner of war camp. Under any of these circumstances, he could easily have died. Well, as long as we're on him at the moment, uh, how did his mother die? Um, she had to have her leg amputated, um, I can't remember what the uh, reason for it was, but it went it went badly um, uh, off. And she'd, she'd had a fall downstairs, and she, in some way, um, affected her leg. It was amputated, and then and then it went wrong, and she died of an embolism. You wrote so young, um, tragically young. 
you in some of your other books, and I, I guess are you using the word uh, the number nineteen books at the moment that you've written? I think if you count if you count the three that are just um, e-books, you know that you can only get on Kindle, then it's nineteen. But but otherwise, um, sixteen hardbacks. What about the health of these? three men and you can throw in there also because i was starting to ask you about hitler who you've written a lot about also <clears throat> when you think about health and the people you've written about what's the backstory well there are lots of them um of course when uh we, we, since we're on churchill churchill had four bouts of pneumonia during the second world war and um and um, two of them could have killed him uh, with regard to otherwise he was he was um he lived to be ninety so uh, i mean he was a great sportsman in his youth and uh, and he tended to to uh, keep fit until at least he was um, he was fighting the second world war even then people would say he would bound up stairs and uh, and, and keep all of his much younger staff very um very um busy um the health of um, George III, of course, ties up with his what's called the King's Malady, which was um, for many years, for the last 50 years, everyone thought it was a disease called porphyria, um, which it wasn't. That's the result of some misdiagnosis as the result of bad, um, the wrong symptoms being given to doctors back in the 1960s. In fact, he had um, bipolar disorder affected type 1. Um, form of manic depression, um, but his his physical health, other than his um, his mental attacks, were fantastic. I mean, he he would he would ride um, every day. He enjoyed long walks. He never ate or drank to excess, and so he was pretty fit. Um, and then, of course, Napoleon. You have a uh, um, a man who goes to fat big time in the in from about eighteen eleven onwards. And uh, by the time he died in May. 1821. He'd been suffering from cancer for four years, uh, which his entire family had pretty much. And so it's a pretty sad story, really, as far as his and his health is concerned. What about their children? You you point out in the book that King George III had 15 children. You say, though, that uh, they were dreadful. No, no, not all of them. Some of them were. <laughs> his eldest son, um, George the uh, George the Fourth, Prince of Wales, later the Prince Regent, uh, was a um, was a terrible human being. Frankly, I could find in the three years that I wrote and researched this book, not a single moment of uh, a sort of lightness from him. He was a uh, um, despicable character in many many ways. But um, but but uh, George loved his children, and he um, was apart from apart from his eldest son. And he was um, a very good father to them and, and sweet and good-natured and played with them when they were young and so on. Um, and, and some of them uh, died tragically early. There, was, uh, there were two that died um, when they were uh, eight and one exactly 18, I think. And it was heartbreaking for him because he did love them. What about Napoleon and his kids? Um, well, there was only one legitimate one, um, the um, the King of Rome, who after the Battle of Waterloo was was wrenched away from him and and taken to live in Vienna and uh, he never saw him again for the last six years of his life, which was uh, which was heartbreaking for Napoleon as well. Um, he had um, uh, some illegitimate children, and um, and they had a uh, uh, one had a very became an alcoholic and had a had a pretty 
um, disastrous life. But another one became um, the, uh, the foreign minister of France, in fact, in a, in a future regime. Winston Churchill and his uh, children, including Randolph? Again, again, well, Randolph took to drinks very sadly. Um, he had, a, he had a, a, a good mind and occasionally a brilliant orator um, and a pretty good journalist as well, actually. But unfortunately, he just couldn't take having such a famous father as Winston Churchill, even though Winston Churchill had had a tremendously famous father in Lord Randolph Churchill, who was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, so that was not a, a, a happy relationship. Um, he also had three daughters, one of whom I knew very well, Mary, uh, Lady Soames, who turned out extraordinarily well and was a, was a, uh, uh, a great woman. Everybody um, loved Mary. And, uh, but unfortunately, the other two sisters, Diana and Sarah, um, had their own demons, and, and uh, they, uh, their, their, their stories aren't happy ones either, overall. Cut one of your talks when you were talking about Hitler, and um, you you at one point said he why he you're asked why did he lose the war, and you say because he was a fanatical unregenerate Nazi. What does that mean? Well, it meant that he put his Nazism, his political theories, um, before the grand strategy of winning the war. He would take decisions because of politics. Uh, rather than because of what is uh, was in the country's best interests or the um, or the Wehrmacht's best interests. Classic examples, of course, being the decision to declare war on America, um, a uninvadable country that was far more powerful industrially and economically than Germany could ever be, and also declaring um, invading Russia, which he wanted to do in order to wipe out the Jews, to have a final reckoning with the Bolsheviks, and to grab Lebensraum, living space, for the Aryan, you know, master race, and um, and all of those three reasons were um, driven by his his hateful Nazi ideology, and nothing to do with his um, um, chances of actually defeating Russia. Um, he attacked at the wrong at the wrong time, and in so many ways, just made mistake after mistake. Um, primarily because he uh, he was a true believer in what he was spouting in his uh, racist rhetoric. As you know, you're often asked how you do what you do, and you point out uh, that you have a series of things that you do, including what you're doing right now with this Disraeli book, creating a timeline. What will play out from here as you write the next book? How do you do it? How many years will you research? And then how will you write? Um, it will be four years. Um, I will spend the first one um, creating, as you say, a timeline. So I want to know exactly where, where he was, what he was doing, what he was saying, um, what he was writing, um, pretty much every week of his, of his life, sometimes every day. Um, and then after that, I'll um, work out, I'll by that stage have also built up over the following year, a series of notes of, in files about different aspects of his of his life, his private life, his Jewishness, his um, early political op opinions. I'll have read the, in the third year all thirteen of his novels and uh, and see the extent to which he was using his novels to uh, to sort of project a, a sense of self and also his uh, 
his political novels and the extent to which he was able to do the things that he he mapped out in his political novels. And then, of course, um, in the last six months or so, I'll, I'll sit down and, and write it. You've often talked about in your Churchill book that it took 100 days to write it and you write 5,000 words a day. Will you do the exact same uh, thing with the, the, the Israeli book? No, I think I'll, I'll take 200 days, actually, or, or 180 days or so. I, I, I don't want it to be quite such a fevered a slog at the at the end. Plus, it's not going to be as long as Churchill either. So um, so I, I ought to be able to to pare that down to about 3,000 words a day. One of the things I heard you talk about once was, uh, uh, you didn't say much about this, and I want to ask you to tell us more. You went to St. Helena for some reason. Explain why and how did you get there? Well, it's it's where Napoleon died um, in 1821. So I very much, it's where he spent his exile for the last six years of his life. So I very much wanted to go there. The only drawback is that you can only get there in those days. Um, they didn't have the runway that was that's, that exists today. And so you uh, had to go by, by um, uh, the post office... Um, um, steamer, as it were, it was, it's a sort of boat that goes out. It takes six days to get from Cape Town to uh, to Santa Helena, and um, yeah, it was quite. A, it's an extraordinary trip, actually, because for, you're, you're you're going there along the in, the in the Atlantic, and for six days you don't see a bird, you don't see a fish, you don't see a plane, nothing. It's just it's just sky and uh, and sea. It's the most extraordinary um, thing, really. Did you go by yourself? No, I took a BBC TV um, camera crew with me because uh, we were making a documentary about Napoleon. So um, that was that was much more fun. They were great guys, and we uh, and we, you know, <laughs> had a good uh, good fun trip. But I think it would have been a bit soul destroying being entirely on your own. There were some other nice people on the uh, on the boat. I think about usually bird uh, watchers because St. Helena has got a it's got an indigenous bird that doesn't live anywhere else. It's an island uh, eight miles by ten miles wide, and it um, uh, it's it's the second most remote um, inhabited island in the world, and so there are a thousand people on it who've never left the island, which is the most extraordinary thought when you think about it. Uh, um, they were all very nice to me, but um, I was I was happy after however many days it was, four days or so, to, uh, to, to get back to um, England. I would ask two questions. Was it worth the trip, and what did you find once you got there? Oh, it was certainly worth the trip, yes, absolutely, because you get the sense. First of all, his house, which has been built and rebuilt and rebuilt because termites um, uh, destroyed it um, after he died, but it's been rebuilt in exactly the same way as it was before. And uh, and his garden is in the same. Uh, he spent a lot of time gardening, and his garden is in the same uh, way it was before. The French, uh, um, the French government take care of it, and uh, it's a piece of France, in fact, legally. Um, and uh, and it is hugely sort of um, redolent of him. And you can go into the room in which he died, and uh, and walk up the steps he walked up, and so on. It's a uh, um, it's a powerful. Um, Thing, partly, I suppose, because of its very remoteness. You know, he'd lost the Battle of Waterloo, and we didn't, we didn't want him to escape again, like he escaped from Elba in 18, 
2015. So, um, so we stuck him on this absolutely incredibly tiny remote island in the middle of the of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and sure enough, he he wasn't able to escape from that. A lot of people ask you how you write, including me, but I rarely uh, heard anybody ask you how you read. Um, well, I, I'm not the um, the omnivorous reader that um, uh, that some people are. In fact, I, I can only really read one book at a time. I, I can't read three books at a time. And say I can write more than one book <laughs> actually at a time, but I can't read more than one book at a time. So I very much have to. I can't read without a, a biro in my hand. I have to be taking notes um, constantly, whether or not I'm reviewing the book at, uh, uh, that I'm reading. I review. 60 or 70 books a year, I'd have thought, so over more than one a week. Um, and uh, I, um, it's, I suppose, my, my number one hobby, uh, really. Where do you read, and how long at one time? Um, I read down in the, um, in, the, in the room next to the kitchen, so I have my kids and my wife wander backwards and forwards, but they are very kind when um, I'm in, in a book and don't disturb me. And... Um, I will. Um, I, I can't really find. I don't find it easy to re- read for longer than about an hour and a half in in a in sort of one sitting. It, I start. I feel I have to sort of get up and wander around, do something else after that time. You've pointed out that, for instance, that Winston Churchill wrote thirty-seven books. That Napoleon had three thirty-three thousand letters. As you um, and then all the letters that you got and the documents from uh, the King George Georgian project uh, how much of that do you read um, well, as much as possible you know I, I uh, if you've got four years and and by the way Disraeli is the same Disraeli there are ten big published volumes of his uh, of his correspondence um, and that only takes you up to 1868 when he became prime minister for the first time now you have to you have to do it but what I don't believe in is using um, research assistants to read for you because I find that first of all it's it's the fun bit is is the research that's the thing I enjoy most about being a writer um, and secondly you can't truly trust that they aren't going to cut corners and uh, and um, basically plagiarize and if you then put this into your book you'd be a plagiarist which is the quickest way to destroy your reputation as a historian um, and uh, and thirdly, you know, actually, you you often wind up having to put more work into um, into work that research assistants do. I've had lots of um, friends who are authors who who um, reckon that it doesn't really save you that much time anyway. So I've never used research assistants, and I and I never would. Okay, how do you remember everything that you remember? And I'll give you an example. Uh, when you watch you talk to an audience right off the top of your head, you'll say things like, in um, the Revolutionary War, there were 26 major battles. The Brits won 15. The United States won eight. Uh, and uh, there were three draws or whatever it is. Or you'll be quoting a battle that Napoleon was involved in and rattle off the fact that he won 60 battles but never won at sea and then name the number of ships that he had versus the number that the Brits had. How do you remember all that? What Do you have a technique, or is it just um, your your vast yeah, I, brain? I, 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 <laughs> that's a very nice way of putting it, Brian. Thank you very much indeed. But I, I find that people do 
do tend to know things that they're fascinated by and that they love and that they're interested in, don't they? I bet there are any number of, um, of statistics and quotations about something that you are expert in or you love um, that you could uh, you could rattle off as well. It's it's just a question, I think, of being of being committed, really. On the George III book, you told one audience that you set your computer on a Google alert for the name uh, George III, and a day never passes that you don't see some negative story coming out of the United States. Explain that one. Yeah, there are, and it's it's quite a fun thing. Google alerts. You you type in the name, and you every single time the name crops up in any newspaper or uh, or website, it um, uh, you get to see it. And there isn't a day, as you say, that doesn't pass. Um, in fact, I got a George the Google alert today, and there was uh, I think there were three um, articles in American newspapers saying that he was a tyrant and a monster, and something somebody called him a dictator. You know. Um, and this is a this is a man who never arrested an American editor, never closed an American newspaper, never put troops on any American in any American city before the revolution, apart from Boston in 1768. He he just didn't act like a tyrant. He didn't try and stop the Stamp Act Congress from meeting or the Continental Congress. You know, you'd have never got away with that under Catherine the Great or or any of his Russian or Prussian or Austrian or French or Spanish. Uh, counterparts of the day. I saw you speak to a significant number of places uh, online, and um, most of them, uh, Heritage, Hoover, Hudson, Hillsdale College, Pepperdine, uh, Bradley Foundation, uh, even Scaramucci, the Mooch, as he's called, um, the New York Historical Society, Prager University, U.S. Army War College, most of them, and if I'm overcharacterizing, tell me, are conservative institutions. Is that do the liberal institutions in America invite you to speak? Um, I don't think you can call the New York Historical Society um, a, a political institution at all. And there was another one that you mentioned there, which I don't don't recognize as being conservative. Well, just so I mean, to be fair, I'm politics and prose had you. And they normally have liberal books that they feature. Folger Library yeah, had you. No, and, yeah, and, and I've been on, on various uh, left-wing um, um, radio shows and things. I, I'll, and a lot on NPR and everything. I'm perfectly happy to uh, talk to anybody who will allow me to to proselytize about the books I write and the, and the, uh, and the work that I do. You know, it's just... Uh, uh, so, so please, you know, if, if you know of any uh, liberal or left-wing um, uh, <laughs> outlets, get, put them in touch. You know, I, I've been on CNN as well. I've been on. Uh, I think I don't think I've, I've ever sort of skewed my uh, my output uh, politically. I just think that they're the people who've asked me. I've not heard you skew it uh, politically, but I have seen quotes that you say you're a right winger. Is that accurate? And explain it. What it means for you. Um, no, I'm on the conserv- I'm on the right wing of the Conservative Party in that I'm a Thatcherite. Um, I'm a um, uh, supporter, was at least when she was alive, of the of the views of Margaret Thatcher. I've never been any further to the right than that. And of course, you have to remember that uh, to be right wing in Britain is nothing like being right wing in America, where you uh, <laughs> you um, have um, uh, conservatives who are way to the right of uh, of people like me. 
What's the difference between it being a right uh, winger in uh, Britain and, and in the United States? Oh, I don't know. You seem to be um, very um, much more socially conservative in the in the states. You know, uh, we don't have in Britain. Just to take one example, we don't have a, a debate over abortion. It, it's just not an issue here in in England. Whereas, of course, it is a very important one over in the view. Well, another thing about the audiences, and because I am one, I might be able to get away with asking this question. Uh, most of your audiences, I see a lot of white-haired older men versus, you know, a diverse audience. Is that your experience in the United States? And if it is, why? Um, yes, I think it, that's probably fair. Um, I think probably because it's retirees who have the time on their hands and maybe also the money to um, uh, to attend these literary festivals and to you know, spend the time necessary listening to to historians like me. I think younger people, I'm thinking now in terms of my kids, um, tend to uh, get their um, get their intellectual stimulation from podcasts and uh, and, um, and so on. Whereas um, whereas actually the people who who literally turn up and then get in a line and, and buy a book. Um, tend to be of an older generation. What do you think the future of your kind of history is then? Well, do you mean my my kind of history, the narrative, um, sort of con- comprehensive history, or, or yes. do you mean yeah, yeah. something else? Serious yeah. narrative, I, large uh, books. I think um, I think it's getting smaller and smaller. I know it's getting smaller and smaller. Um, I think the um, uh, the, the book sales, individual book sales, are still pretty strong, but the number of people who find that they can earn a living from it um, has shrunk. And uh, I see an awful, much, much smaller um, amount of space being given to books in uh, in newspapers and, and so on, um, which is why the podcast is so important, is why what you're doing um, is, um, in fact, I'm setting up my own podcast next week, um, is um, I think it's taking over essentially from book reviews because people still have the hunger to know about the past. They're still fascinated by history. Um, it's just that they they are now you know, getting the um, information about books in a different way than before. What is your podcast going to be about? It's going to be called The Secrets of Statesmanship. Um, it's um, a Hoover Institution podcast. It's going to be... Uh, I'm going to be interviewing various statesmen about the importance of history in their lives, how they were taught history, what they've uh, learned from history and so on. And also I'm going to be talking to historians about their subjects and about uh, about what the people they've written about um, assumed from history and learned from history. Where can people find it? Um, I, not the first idea. It's coming out next week, and I ought to know that. Of course I ought to. But... Um, uh, thank you for putting me on the spot there, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I assume, once again, we can Google it and find it? I, uh, Uncle Google, he's the answer. Another thing that I noticed in your... Are you aware that you have so many YouTube and C-SPAN uh, talks available? Have you ever gotten online and looked? No, I, I no. Someone told me this the other day that some that there was one debate I did with Adam 
uh, Zamoyski, who's a, who's a charming and, and rather brilliant uh, historian, Polish historian. And somebody said that half a million people had watched this debate, which is the most extraordinary thing, you know. I mean, one, one sort of uh, shudders to think, you know, half a million people. Um, I don't know whether or not it's, uh, it's reflected any of this in, in terms of book sales, which obviously is uh, an important aspect of it all. But it must be, uh, ultimately, I'd have thought. Which of all your books sold the most? Churchill. Churchill. That sold over half a million copies in uh, in 18 languages. And how is George III doing? Incredibly well. Yeah, I I haven't got the numbers um, to hand, but it's, um, and it's not as big as, as uh, Churchill, but it's actually an awful lot better than the publishers were thinking, and it's uh, it's got a... Um, post-Christmas um, sale, which is the important thing. Some, sometimes after Christmas, a book will just collapse in terms of sales, but that hasn't happened to, to George III. So I'm very pleased to see that, therefore, there are an awful lot of your countrymen who recognise that, um, that, yes, of course, you need wartime propaganda in a, in, a, in a revolution. And as I say, the 1770s were the right time for America to become independent. You had two and a half million population. You had burgeoning year-on-year growth. You had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire, except for London. And so, you know, it was ready for independence. It just wasn't uh, fought against a a king who was in any sense um, a tyrant. Quoting you, you said that in a recent poll, and I don't know how long ago this particular talk was, that 20% of British teenagers think that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. Yeah, terrifying, terrifying. And in the same poll, some equal kind of number thought that the American War of Independence had been won by Denzel Washington. Um, the, uh, the ignorance out there is terrifying, and, um, and it only seems to be growing. And um, so, you know, when people do buy books and read, and read them, they are doing a, a, a service to civilization, in my view, um, just learning anything about, uh, about the truth in the past. Um, but equally, in that same, um, in that same <laughs> extraordinary survey, and it was a big survey, it was of thousands of, of, uh, of teenage school children, so it wasn't just one of those sort of one-off thing with no um, uh, proper structure. They also, 47% of them believe that Sherlock Holmes was a real person, and 53% thought that Eleanor Rigby was a real person. (laughs) I have to say that uh, the folks that are in the control room with me at the moment, when you talked about Denzel Washington, they both lost it, and we almost had an (laughs) on-air catastrophe here. (laughs) I'm looking... At uh, the, the day we're recording this is the day that uh, Jeff Zucker uh, stepped down from CNN because of a romantic affair that he had been having with one of his colleagues. And I only mention that because you wrote a column and I didn't I'd never seen this before. I should have in, in history. You wrote a column for uh, the Daily Mail uh, last Sunday <clears throat> in which you were you, you can pick the words, but defending Boris Johnson and what he has been doing over there in the party and all isn't nearly as as uh, bad or as wrong as you go through a lot of people, including Neville Chamberlain, Clement Attlee, 
uh, Anthony Eden, things that they got involved in, plus <clears throat> David Lord George. And I'm going to stop there before I ask you another question on this list, and that is you have a shirt in your home that belonged to David Lloyd George. Why? Yes, I'm looking at it now, in fact. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, and my wife, who thinks that, that she... I, I collect historical artifacts. I've got quite a large collection. And, um, and my wife thinks, calls it bric-a-brac. Um, and, uh, and she wanted to have this, this shirt of David Lloyd George washed. I said, absolutely no way. I, you know, it's got the DNA of the great man there. And, uh, I, he, he had his stiff collars. I've got a couple of his stiff collars with, with his initials um, uh, embossed on them. It's, um, I don't know why is the answer. It's obviously a form of psychological disorder to need to be surrounded by <laughs> artifacts of the, of the people that you write about. I've got Winston Churchill's bow tie and a pair of his slippers. Um, um, so a lock of Napoleon's hair and so on. A battle. I'm looking around my my study at the moment. A, a, a cannonball from the Battle of Waterloo. Well, bits and pieces. Well, given what we're just talking about about people not knowing things, I better ask you who David Lloyd George was and why that's important enough to. He was important enough oh, to have a shirt. Was the, he was the he was the prime minister um, who won the First World War. In addition, you have. The Iron Curtain speech on your wall, I believe, from Winston Churchill. Why do you have that? And I'm not, I mean, tell us if it's the actual speech. Uh, and if it's not, why is no, it important? No, it's not the speech. It's an invitation to the, to the speech. Um, and also it's the program of, the, um, of uh, Westminster College um, and the speech that was taking place in the auditorium on the 5th of March, 1946. Um, oh, it's it's such an important speech, isn't it? It's the one way Winston Churchill essentially wakes up the West, shakes the West awake to recognise that Stalin, for all the extraordinary things he did in defeating Hitler, uh, was not Uncle Joe, was not a, a sort of friendly and benign force that he'd been made out to be quite a lot by the media during the Second World War, but was actually a... Uh, a, t- a true tyrant. In this article that I was talking about in the Daily Mail last Sunday, um, the thing that got my attention, I just didn't know this, I, I'll read it out loud. Uh, you're talking about things that other prime ministers have done that were far more important than the problem that Boris Johnson has. You said John Major had sex with his colleague Edwina Curry on the cabinet table. Tony Blair took one a uh, million million pound donation from million, motor yeah. uh, motor racing tycoon Bernie uh, Ecclestone just prior to changing the rules on tobacco advertising in the sport. The point is that that uh, story on Edwina Curry and John Major. Um, how big a deal was that one that came out? And that was I, what was it in the eighties? Well, it didn't come out nineties. It didn't come out until after John Major um, had given up the premiership in 1997, or at least been voted out of the premiership in 1997. So, in a sense, that's a much more. Um, I mean, there are other things that that he he did that were um, arguably much worse in my in my my sense is the the deal he did at Maastricht, where he agreed to an ever closer union with the EU the European Union at a time when virtually none of his party and a lot of Britons didn't want that. But, uh, yes, there are, there are things that an awful lot of uh, people have done, in my view at least, much worse than Boris Johnson. One of the reasons that I got into this, I mentioned Jeff Zucker, is the attention. You want to you pause for a minute? No, do. Do go on. 
Okay. <clears throat> One of the reasons that I mentioned Jeff Zucker because of the uh, reason he stepped down was because of... I remote. haven't heard of Jeff Zucker, I'm afraid, so I'm not going to be able to make any comment particularly. No, 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 you don't have to. No, he's the right. president of CNN. Um, and, and we've been going through a lot of this, as you know, over here. You've, you're no stranger to it in, in Great Britain. But I'm looking... And he was having an affair with one of his own employees, was he? Yes, for, I, I gather, a okay. number of years. Anyway, um, but I'm, the reason why I started down this road is I'm looking at a reminder on one of my notes about Pamela Harriman's letters. And I heard you talking about these letters, and I, I have a couple of questions. One, uh, what, what were they and why were they so interesting? And why would we know, why would she have saved those letters or how do those kind of things end up in archives? Um, well, these letters in particular are not in an archive. They are in the private possession of the Churchill family. And um, so I was very lucky to uh, be allowed to read them. Um, they're love letters, essentially, from her various lovers. Um, and she had she had a good number of them, actually, during the Second World War. And, um, and lots of them are not just about love. They also... You know, talk about how various people are going off to Yalta, and and uh, they mention her father-in-law, Winston Churchill. So they were of re- relevance, um, but um, they uh, had never been quoted in a book before. So I was very fortunate to be able to uh, to have a chance to read them. I mean, I, there are about forty, forty or forty-five or so um, archives that I was able to use for my Churchill book that um, had never been used for any book before. You, you do talk about the fact you're getting access early on to a number of things like the Georgian papers and also Winston Churchill's uh, things, the Queen's father's diaries, the, the current Queen's father's diaries. How does this work? Do you, do you ask for them or do they call you up and say, Andrew, we're, we're ready. We, we, we're going to dump these in your lap. No, you ask for them, and you keep asking for them, and you ask for them ad nauseam. And uh, finally, um, uh, a decision is is made that's different from all of the earlier ones. Um, Why they, after 75 years, allowed me to look at the King's Diaries um, from the Second World War, I don't know. But I was tremendously lucky that uh, they they did, of course. Um, I think that after 75 years, you know, most of the people... Are dead, of course, who, who said the things in the, the mentioned in the diaries and did the things. So um, there's very much a, uh, a sense that no one's going to get embarrassed. Um, and uh, and so why not allow the public to know what was going through the mind of um, the head of state during the Second World War? Is there anything about Disraeli that we don't know that you're going to get access to? Um uh, if there were, I wouldn't tell you. I'm afraid, <laughs> because I, I haven't signed the contract. I haven't started writing the book. <laughs> I haven't. Um, I, there are other people who are writing about Disraeli, and I'd be insane, frankly insane, to tell you any scoops. Ah, oh, come on, Andrew. You, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Please yes, I will. Forgive me, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I mean it's very ignoble in a sense because your first thought when you come across papers that hadn't um, been spotted. This, uh, I felt, felt this very strongly when I was uh, in uh, Churchill Archives in Cambridge, and I discovered uh, a series of hieroglyphics and uh, shorthand uh, noting, um, and I realized that they were the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet, 
and that they've been um, they've been a, sort of stuck in a uh, in an in a box for seventy three years, and nobody had. Um, and nobody had looked into it and nobody had checked out what they were because they were almost impossible to decipher. And uh, and my first feeling was, oh, gosh, I hope nobody else finds these before I publish my book, which is a pretty ignoble uh, initial reaction to have, I accept. It's time to let you go. But before we do, what advice would you have for somebody listening to this that's considerably younger and thinks they want to get into history and they're, you know, they look at what you've done, and, and it's rather substantial. And they say, "How do I do that? What what advice would you have for them?" Um, well, obviously, do work hard at um, at history at school and university. You know, it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, to use libraries and to uh, and to interrogate teachers and to uh, and to get the qualifications needed. The next thing I'd say is, don't expect to um, to become very rich. Um, it's a uh, it's a profession where there are an awful lot of people who earn barely above the minimum wage. Frankly, um, I would say that it is grindingly hard work if it's done properly. And if you're not willing to put in the grinding hard work, then don't do it because there are an awful lot of good historians out there who will. And uh, finally, I would say if I haven't put you off by any of those um, earlier things, then. It really is the best job in the world. It's totally wonderful to be able to follow something that fascinates you every day of your life. Andrew Roberts, how much time did you spend in the United States on your tour? And uh, how much time do you spend at home as you're doing your research? Um, I uh, I tend to spend most of the time in archives when I'm doing my research. But um, I write the books at home. Uh, I spent six weeks on a book tour in America in November and December, where I spoke, I think, 40 times. Um, and I'm coming back to America at the end of this month to speak at the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia and at Mount Vernon and a few places in New York. So, so all in all, um, it's a uh, tremendous fun aspect of being a historian, the publicizing bit. But it's not the most fun. The most fun is, is actually being in the archives and researching. Our guest has been Andrew Roberts, a British historian, wrote uh, over 19 books. Three of the biggest are the one on Napoleon, the one on Winston Churchill, and the current book, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. We thank you, sir, very much for your time. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.